This is They Create Worlds, episode 194, The Seventh Guest. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my guest, Alex. He might even be the seventh guest that we had. I don't know. Oh, God. That doesn't... I don't want to be the seventh guest, but, uh, hello? (laughs) Just follow me as we go up to this attic where some very inconsequential candles have been laid out. Why is there a skeletal hand beckoning me? I I don't like this. Well, it's because it's September 15th, right before the glory times of October. So we decided, let's get an early start on Halloween by covering the seventh guest. This has nothing to do with the fact that we just talked about it for 50 minutes at some sort of convention or whatever. That's right. At the time we're recording this, it is still about a month or so away from Dragon Con, but by the time you are listening to this, Dragon Con will have already occurred, and we will have already uh, given a 50-minute talk, give or take, on the seventh guest. Not being ones to do more work than is absolutely necessary most of the time, we are therefore also doing this episode of They Great Worlds on the seventh guest, though I imagine it'll be slightly more than 50 minutes knowing how we do things around here. Slightly more than 50 minutes, you say. But it will only be a one-parter. I I can actually guarantee that. (laughs) Okay, I can at least accept that, even as I leave like half an hour on the cutting room floor. (laughs) That's right. So this is the 30th anniversary this year. I mean, the the actual 30th anniversary was earlier in the year. It came out around April of 1993. But this year is the 30th anniversary of the seventh guest. So as we were looking around for something to discuss at DragonCon, we wanted to do something that had some level of milestone relevance. We chose to do the seventh guest for that. And as luck would have it, we haven't really covered it on the show. We did do a Silly Wood episode. In the course of that, we did discuss the seventh guest as part of that, but we're going to devote a whole episode to it because this really was the first killer app for CD-ROM, the first computer game and by extension computer program of any kind, since nobody cared about other types of computer programs on CD, that kind of pushed the purchase and adoption of CD-ROM drives, particularly on the PC, because even though Myst came out in the same year, we do have to remember that Myst was originally a Macintosh exclusive. It wasn't on PC. So Seventh Guest was really the program that started the mass adoption of CD-ROM. So it's a milestone title, Launched the Sillywood era in a lot of ways and happened to be 30 years old this year. So it was a good Dragon Con topic. Because we're talking about it anyway, we're also going to talk about it on They Create Worlds, the uh, podcast. Or at least as long as we don't talk about it on They Create Worlds, the toilet paper. (laughs) We both haven't really owned or played this game, as far as I know. Neither of us have owned it, and I know you haven't played it, but I actually was exposed to it at the time. Our friend, Matt Kirkpatrick, whom you may remember, they got a CD-ROM drive very early. They did purchase a copy of The Seventh Guest, or it came with their CD-ROM drive. I honestly don't know which, because it was definitely a program that was bundled pretty heavily with CD-ROM drives. I did have some exposure to it as a child. 
Only some. We didn't like play it through from start to finish. I didn't beat the game or anything, but I was exposed to it at the time. I do think it's a game you absolutely had to be there for. If you look at a Let's Play now, and and I know you've been looking at some of that kind of stuff in uh, anticipation of our Dragon Con event, which is still forthcoming at the time of this recording. Hello, future us. If you just look at Let's Play stuff like 30 years removed, it's like, I'm sure, uh, not to speak for you, but I'm sure there's a, a little bit of, what's the big deal around this? You solve a silly little puzzle, you see a silly little video clip, wash, rinse, repeat. But it truly was astounding at the time it came out because there had really not been anything like it before. For me, just watching some playthroughs and for me actually playing games during this era, I played Myst. I played some remakes mm-hmm. of Myst where they actually do the same kind of thing that they do in The Seventh Guest where they have that, okay, you click to move in a direction. You have this sort of like little animation as you go from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. You also, I know, owned uh, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective as well, which was one of the very first games to incorporate FMV. Correct. And another one of those that I also really, really enjoyed is actually the Journeyman Project. I remember that one as well. Yeah, that was a very well done, nice storytelling and puzzle solving and actually had different branches to it. What struck me about The Seventh Guest is that it is surprisingly mature for a video game aimed at ostensibly kids. <laughs> There's some raunchy uh, implications and or sounds and or scenes. Absolutely. And, and I think it wasn't entirely aimed at kids, which is part of the reason they went that direction. The other thing to remember, and, and we'll get into this as well uh, as we discuss it, but one of the things that really set Seventh Guest apart from other games that incorporated FMV at the time, even though Myst is a similar kind of game, did not incorporate full motion video. Mist was literally a slideshow. It was built using a base of hypercard. And so when you moved, you were not moving through an animated world. It was literally a series of still pictures. But one thing that really set Seventh Guest apart as an FMV game is it was actually done with full SVGA graphics in 1993, by which we mean a 640 by 480 resolution with 256 colors. To use an example of another early FMV game that we briefly mentioned before, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, which Jeffrey owned, that was not in SVGA. You had a little window that had the video in it that was not an SVGA window. Back then, having any kind of really good graphics, we considered 640 by 480 to be, how could graphics get any better? And most games weren't in 1993. Most games at the time were still in VGA, and VGA at that time really meant 320 by 240. You still, in general, had like 16 colors or 64 colors or whatever. You did not have 256 colors. It looks very primitive to look at it today, but to have something like that in 1993 was actually truly astounding. Also, keep in mind, if you look at this on a modern display, you're looking at it on an HD monitor, Mm -hmm. which does not take advantage of something that we talked about before with these lower graphics where they knew we are going to be shooting this at a CRT, which inherently adds fuzziness. The fuzziness actually made it look better because your mind takes that fuzziness and adds in detail. Absolutely. 
you know, it's easy to kind of dismiss the FMV style games today. And, and we on this very podcast in our Sillywood episode certainly did that as well. But there is, honestly, as someone who was there, there is a degree of having to be there because we were so blown away by the fact that we had these 3D environments and we had these real actors and we had this actual video in there that at the time we overlooked some of the gameplay shortcomings because this was beyond anything that we thought was possible in a video game or a computer game. And uh, of course, we realized it was all smoke and mirrors after a short period of time. The FMV thing ended up being a flash in the pan. But it was truly astounding when what you were used to is pixel art and particularly, for the most part, NES and early SNES pixel art. It was truly something new and different. And that's why a game like Seventh Guest was so incredibly successful when it came out in 1993. Yeah, just imagine that. You went from SNES graphics to full motion video, and it looked fairly good on a blurry CRT. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so I think we've sang this thing praises enough. I see it beckoning us further into this wonderful mansion. Oh, look, there seems to be some sort of murder over there. <laughs> but what's important is, how are we going to tackle this one? I think we need to start from the beginning with who's responsible for making this nightmare to begin with. That's right. Well, the two people that came up with this idea and did the vast majority of the work, and that's not an exaggeration, because they did have some help on the art end. There was a music person. But the vast majority of the work was really done by these two people. That is Graham Devine and Rob Landeros. They were, at the time... Certainly not anymore, but at the time, when everything was kind of overblown, they were referred to, in a way, as a Lennon and McCartney of video games. Now, they weren't the only people referred to in this way. Uh, John Carmack and John Romero, for instance, of id, were also referred to in this way. But it's not just the idea that they were considered visionaries at the time, just as Lennon and McCartney were visionaries in music. But it's this idea that you had these two people with very different backgrounds and very different skill sets coming together to create something that neither could have done on their own. Just as John Lennon was this kind of streetwise, working-class kid who had this kind of edge to him, and Paul McCartney had this real facility for love songs, and that you put the two of them together— and they created a songwriting duo that was the foundation of the Beatles and did something in rock music that had never been done before, you kind of had the similar idea with Divine and Landeros, who came together and created something that neither one of them could have done on their own, but relied on both of their abilities to make it happen. So if we're going to tell the story of The Seventh Guest, we really have to start by briefly telling the story of both of these individuals. Graham Devine was an ace coder. He's Scottish, so he came out of the British bedroom coder milieu, which we've talked about before. There was this real push in the United Kingdom to get computers in the hands of young people as part of creating Margaret Thatcher's New Britain. So there was a real bedroom coder movement in the United Kingdom that, even though you did have teenage prodigies in the United States and elsewhere as well, 
there was more of that kind of thing going on in the United Kingdom than anywhere else. Graham was part of that, though it wasn't just because of the Margaret Thatcher push. He actually had a father who was working with a mainframe computer. He was exposed to mainframes as a teenager just because of his father's work, and he was able to go down to where his father worked and see the computer, and he was exposed to early mainframe games like Adventure in the late 70s or early 80s, probably early 80s, but somewhere right around there, the late 70s transitioning into the early 80s. Because the family was technologically savvy, they also had a microcomputer, a personal computer, a home computer, whatever you want to call it, very early in their own home. And the first computer that Graham actually programmed on was a hobbyist computer called the Transam Triton. There's no need to go into that computer. It's not a particularly important computer. It was a hobbyist computer, which meant you had to assemble it yourself generally. Though, as, as Graham has told it in interviews, the one that they got was already pre-assembled before they had it. But, you know, it was an early hobbyist computer in the United Kingdom, and that was his kind of first exposure to this. Then, at some point, the family ended up getting a second-hand TRS-80 computer, which was never a particularly big computer in the United Kingdom, but Tandy the parent company of Radio Shack, did have a presence in the United Kingdom, so a small number of the early coders did have access to the TRS-80, and since he got in very early, he was one of those. He was in on these very early hobbyist computers, and then on the very early TRS-80, started learning how to program, of course was exposed to games like Adventure at his father's work, and became quite a coding prodigy as a teenager and started making his own simple games on the TRS-80 and then moving on to the Sinclair computers that were more common in the UK, like the ZX-81 and the ZX Spectrum. He did a couple of primitive kind of arcade clone, like shoot 'em up kind of games that were released by a company called Softech. Then he saw an ad in the back of a computer magazine that Atari, which did have a UK branch at this time, was looking for a programmer to do a computer port of the arcade game Pole Position. Atari had licensed Pole Position, classic racing game from Namco, and was releasing it, of course, on their video game systems like the VCS, but they were also very interested in porting this to the computer platforms at the time, and the British branch of the company, the UK branch, put this ad looking for a programmer to port the game to the ZX Spectrum. And this would be about 1982, give or take. Graham, who was born in 1966, was 16, all of 16 at the time. So he answered the ad, he created a little demo, where he created an incomplete version of Pole Position, you know, a car racing around a track, very much like the Pole Position track, took it to Slough, which is where the Atari UK branch was, and got the job on the basis of his very, very impressive coding job. At 16 years old. Pretty good. Yeah. You know, he took some time to do that and uh, actually got himself into a bit of trouble because, of course, he is 16. He's still a student. It got to the point where his student responsibilities and his game responsibilities were kind of running up against each other. And Atari was starting to get a little bit impatient waiting for this game and was like, we kind of need this thing. Okay, thanks. So he finally decided... As his A-levels were coming up, a very important round of examinations in the British school system, he decided that he couldn't juggle both at the same time, and he told his parents, he said, I've got this deadline from Atari, 
I need to get this game done, so I need to take a week off of school, just not go to school for a week, so I can finish this pole position game. His parents were very supportive. I mean, remember, his father works with computers, so I mean, there's some understanding there. So they agree that he doesn't have to go to school for a week, and he gets the game mostly completed in that week. You know, there's still testing and bug fixing to do, but it's basically done. He goes back to school, and instead of doing the sensible thing, which was saying, I got the flu, or whatever else, he told them that he took a week off of school to go create a computer game. Kids, if you're going to lie to a truancy officer, I suggest not telling the truth. <laughs> That's right. And being like, hey, I was That's sick right. with something bad. It was a stomach flu. It was coming out of both ends. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but something that they can't verify. You can't say things like, oh, I broke my arm. It's better now. You certainly can't tell them I just blew off school for a week because I wanted to program games. Even if, in all fairness, you were programming this game under contract with a major video game company. The school was not amused, and at the end of the day, he was called into the vice principal's office, and he was told that he was expelled. No messing around here. Apparently not. Sources differ on what happened next, and I say sources, but the sources really grabbed Divine himself. He has given several interviews over the years, and the details change a little bit each time, not because of maliciousness, but just because I think of memory. Even though Graham is the sole source for a lot of the information here, there's still different versions of it, funnily enough. As he put it in one interview, it was fine because he had already been accepted to a university. It was close enough to graduation they would already been accepted, so it wasn't a big deal that he got expelled. There's another profile that says that his parents strenuously complained about this, and the school relented and let him back in, so his expulsion only lasted for about a week or so. I don't know what exactly is true, but regardless, he did get expelled for taking a little time off from school to create a computer game. I am kind of impressed about that, at least here in the States when you and I were kids. You only got expelled for something really bad, usually violent and physical. Not, I'm truant for a week. Yeah, I mean, the British school system has a reputation. I mean, you know, Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall is all about the horrors of growing up within the British educational system. I don't have the cultural framework to fully evaluate this, but yeah, <laughs> he was expelled, but may have been reinstated later. Sources do differ on that point. Regardless, it didn't slow him down. Regardless, he had a new vocation, <laughs> whether he continued on with his schooling or not, because he had established himself as an ace programmer of these computer games. He moved on from there to actually form his own company with another guy by the name of Program Techniques. One of the first things they did is they actually got a job to port the game Ball Blazer from Lucasfilm Games to the ZX Spectrum, because initially when Lucasfilm Games was set up, it was actually set up in partnership with Atari. Atari provided a lot of the startup funding to get the company going. There were originally contracts for those very first Lucasfilm games, Rescue on Fractalus and Ball Blazer, to appear on Atari systems, the Atari 5200 console, and on the Atari 8-bit computers. Now, as Atari fell apart in the crash, that didn't fully materialize, but at the time he was working on that pole position port, 
Ballblazer was circulating, and they wanted to port that to the ZX Spectrum, and so he ended up taking on that job and ended up getting in with the Lucasfilm game people that way. I mean, he didn't join the company, but he ported that game for him. He got to spend a little time at Skywalker Ranch in Marin County. This just speaks to how good of a programmer he is. I'm going to throw <laughs> some videos in the show notes of this. I know Ballblazer. I used to play it on the C64. Sure. It was one of my favorite childhood games. That thing is fast-paced, crazy, you don't know what's going on half the time. And I'm just skipping through a video here of it running on the ZX Spectrum. The fact that he could get it to run at all on the ZX Spectrum is nuts. No, it really is. And remember, he's doing all of this as a teenager. He is a true programming prodigy. I do not want to short sell that at all. He is pretty darn amazing. So he does the ball blazer thing, and they do an original game through program techniques as well. But his partner gets addicted to drugs, which is kind of a problem. So he kind of flees that situation. And then the backers of the company, who were a little bit shady, kind of got a little bit upset at the fact that he was fleeing the situation, felt that they had invested in the company, and he owed them some compensation for that and threatened to come around and beat him up and do the other kinds of things that shady people do when they feel like they have not received the services that they were promised. It's not about you specifically. It's about me extending a message that other people who do business with me know what to expect if I am disappointed. So he was threatened. He tried to work it out with them. They demanded a meeting. So they met at his parents' house, where he's a teenager, he was still living there too. As he tells the story, these two guys show up, and his father is there waiting to back him up by having a golf club at the ready in case things turned ugly, kind of hiding behind the door with the golf club. I just want to say at this point that his dad sounds kind of cool. Scary situation, and again, even though Graham should be the only source for this, we have conflicting reports on what happened next. I've read in some sources that the people were talking a big talk and then finally decided that they would sit down at the table and work out an equitable arrangement. I've heard from other sources that they were not equitable at all, and John Davina's father actually had to swing the golf club for dramatic effect and chase them out of the house. I don't know which one is true. Again, it's kind of funny that even though Graham should be the only source for this, there are multiple tellings of this. I think you need to hunt this guy down and have an interview. (laughs) Right. Either way, it got sorted out. Graham's legs were not broken. He got on with it and continued to be a contract programmer. He ended up doing some games for the company Mastertronic. We haven't done a Mastertronic episode yet. I'm sure we will at some point. Uh, So we don't really want to belabor the point about them right now. But Mastertronic got its start in budget software. Because in the British market, we've talked before, lower standard of living. Everything's still on cassette tape. Everything was cheaper generally. Cheaper generally in this case meant that maybe, you know, your games were 10 to 20 pounds. Mastertronic was founded by a few people that were already in the video cassette business, Frank Herman, Alan Sharam, Martin Alper. They got the idea that they could go even lower. They could sell games for like two pounds, three pounds, and do this as a budget software where they made signed contracts with developers 
and got software at a relatively cheap price and then just maintained really low margins on that software but had high volume sales make up for that. They basically served as jobbers where they would bring their big racks full of Mastertronic games into local stores and say, hey, we've got this giant rack of games we want to put in your store. You don't have to do anything to maintain it. We'll do all the maintenance. We'll do all the restocking. Obviously, we'll share a bit of the proceeds with you. And by maintaining these low margins, they could make their profit in high volume. It's, it's the exact same kind of thing like if you go into a Walmart I think probably still even today, but especially if you went into a Walmart 10 years ago at the time of this recording, and you would see the super cheap DVDs right at the front of the store, like by the cash register. Walmart didn't create those displays. There were jobbers that would come in and just literally wheel those displays into the store and be the ones to maintain them. And it's the exact same idea as like the $5 DVDs at the front of a Walmart. So this is the business that Mastertronic pioneered in the United Kingdom, this idea of budget computer game software. They made a lot of money doing this, and uh, later on in the 1980s, they decided to expand. They weren't giving up the budget software, but they decided to expand out-of-budget software, created their Arcadia label for more full-priced kind of software. Graham Devine ended up working for them uh, doing games for Arcadia, most notably an adventure game by the name of Metropolis. Then in around 1986-1987, Mastertronic decided, because they were doing so well in the United Kingdom, that they wanted to open a branch in the United States. Very big market. So they basically flipped a coin, drew straws, whatever, and it was decided that Martin Ulper would be the partner in the organization that would move to the United States and set up Mastertronic's U.S. operations in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County, near Los Angeles. So they established Mastertronic USA, or whatever it is they called it at the time. They needed somebody technical to help get the operation set up over there. Because remember, Mastertronic is contracting with other companies and other programmers to create their budget software. They don't have in-house technical expertise. So Martin Olper's going over as the business guy, but he doesn't know the first thing about programming. They have this relationship with Divine, and Martin Alper basically says to him, hey, why don't you come over for six months and help me set up this U.S. operation because nobody over here has the first idea of how to turn on a Commodore 64. So Divine took the offer and uh, in about 1987 or so moved to the United States to help found Mastertronic USA. That kind of establishes him in the spot where all the magic happens. Very soon after that, in 1988, there was actually a merger between Mastertronic and Virgin Games, which is the computer software arm of the Virgin Group, Richard Branson's very important British conglomerate that is known for way, 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 way more than just computer software. He's been involved in all sorts of things. They formed in 1988 Virgin Mastertronic. So Martin Alper continued in the United States, in Irvine, as the head of Virgin Games, Virgin Mastertronics U.S. branch, and Graham Devine was there as well. So that's one half of this so-called Lennon and McCartney partnership of Devine and Landeros. Now let's turn our attention to Mr. Rob Landeros. Rob Landeros is about 16 years older than Graham Devine. He was born in the late 1940s. He was an artist, or is an artist. I mean, he's still alive at the time of this recording. I shouldn't say was. But he is an artist. 
American, unlike Divine. He is an American. Whereas Divine was one of these hard-charging, work-all-the-time coders, like fanatical about coding, marathon coding sessions and all of that. Landeros, in his own words, so I'm, I'm not besmirching in any way, was a very lazy kind of fellow. He was a talented artist, but he wasn't much of one for working. He attended a few different art schools, because he did have talent, bounced around through some art schools, never, to my knowledge, graduated from any of them. <laughs> then at the end of the 1960s, fell in in the Berkeley area, a big part of the counterculture, and ended up being part of the underground comics movement in Berkeley at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. He ended up doing some underground comic books through a uh, company called The Print Mint in Berkeley. These were somewhat risque, somewhat raunchy comics that he was doing, and, and very much part of the whole counterculture ethos that Berkeley was a part of at the time. He continued drifting around uh, through much of the 70s, and then uh, in 1978 or so, late 70s, on the verge of abject poverty, his own words, he uh, ended up connecting with a friend of his in the jewelry business who showed him how to do scrimshaw-like engravings on ivory and similar materials. This gave him a trade. He kind of got involved in creating these carvings. I mean, he's, he's involved in all sorts of artistic mediums. He's very talented. I mean, he does painting, he inks his own comics, now he's doing carving. I mean, he is active in a lot of different mediums. He's very talented, he's just not very career-driven, <laughs> let's put it that way. This art stuff allows him to kind of make ends meet as the 70s turn into the 1980s. He's eking out a living as an artist. Somewhere in the mid-80s, he comes across the Commodore 64. He originally buys a Commodore 64 just for the entertainment, to play games on it. But he comes to realize that computers and pixel art are a quite interesting new medium for artistic expression. So he kind of starts getting into learning how to do art on computers and even doing a small amount of programming as well, though that's never his specialty. I mean, he is an artist first and foremost, not a programmer. He ends up falling in with a fellow by the name of Jim Sachs a computer artist who most famously does the art for the Cinemaware game Defender of the Crown. We haven't done a Cinemaware episode yet. That's another company, just like Mastertronic, that I'm sure someday we will. We've probably mentioned Cinemaware in passing before. I'm almost certain we have. But the real thing that was interesting about Cinemaware is, as the name implies, Cinemaware was trying to merge the ideas of computer games and cinematic presentation. In fact, the founder of the company, Bob Jacobs, may have been, and I say may because I haven't researched this thoroughly, but may have been the person that even coined the term interactive movie. The interactive movie of Cinemaware was not the seventh guest which we're building up to here. It's not full motion video. It's not even something like Wing Commander, Wing Commander 3 or Wing Commander 4, because we're talking the mid-80s here. We're talking about the Commodore Amiga here. We're not talking about a time where you can do movies integrated into games, like shot with real actors and all of this stuff. But still, this idea that you do cinematic storytelling merged with action video game play. 
is something that Bob Jacobs was very much about. So the graphics of the games and the presentation of the games at CinemaWare were very, very, very important to the overall aesthetic of the company. And in particular, we talked about this, I, I know for sure, in our EA Sports episodes, because we talked about how John Madden football in the early EA Sports ecosystem was very much inspired by TV sports football at Cinematronics, which had the conceit of this was a televised football match. So it's not just that you were playing football or simulating football, but you had announcers, you had a halftime show, you had cheerleaders, like all of this stuff that is about the trappings of football being on television and not just about the trappings of simulating the game of football in a computer game kind of capacity, if that makes sense. It does. I am glad they did drop the commercials, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Defender of the Crown was their first game, and Defender of the Crown just stunned people with its art style. It took full advantage of the Amiga, which was still new at the time, which had a higher resolution and more colors than other systems of the time, particularly if you were doing static images. So it had this beautiful artwork that was combined with these mini-games like jousting and rescuing maidens and all of this other stuff, very similar to what we were talking about with pirates in our Microprose episode recently, this idea that you're romanticizing like what the knights did based on what they did in movies and having them perform all of these mini-game activities, but then tying it together with these absolutely beautiful artworks. These full-screen still photos and, and cutscenes and everything. Oh, some of them are animated. I mean, I'm watching a castle wall being knocked down by a catapult. Guys are just standing around there looking pretty, and the catapults in the wall are the only things really moving. But, I mean, it's there. Absolutely. This was stunning at the time it came out in the same way that Seventh Guest was stunning when it came out just a few years later. Jim Sachs was the primary person doing this. I'm not trying to take away from what he did. It was primarily his art, but Rob Landeros helped out on doing some of the art in Defender of the Crown. As I said, this was CinemaWare's first game as they were just getting established. So after that, after they got established, they wanted to have a full-time art director on staff at Cinematronics. They offered it to Jim Sachs, but Jim Sachs didn't want that kind of role. So then they turned to Rob Landeros. Rob became the art director for CinemaWare, which was a crucial position at CinemaWare, a company that was really trying to make artistic and cinematic presentation a big part of their overall package. So he did that for a couple of years, and as he put it, he felt underpaid and underappreciated in that role. It just felt like they were throwing too much at him and, and not paying him what he felt an art director should have been paid. At the same time, they were also, they made a deal with NEC, with NEC, who had their TurboGrafx-16 system, and they were releasing a CD-ROM peripheral for the TurboGrafx-16. And CinemaWare, because it was all about this whole interactive movie concept, was very excited about the idea of CD-ROM. They signed a deal with NEC and Hudson to port their games to the TurboGrafx CD. They had a specialized, like, separate team doing that that was walled off from the rest of the company. And so Rob Landeros felt left out and kind of jealous by this idea that there was this other super secret CD team over here doing cool cutting-edge stuff that he wasn't a part of. Now, that deal ended up being a big part of CinemaWare's undoing, because, of course, the TurboGrafx-16, unlike in Japan, uh, where the PC engine which was the original name for it, and the name for it in Japan, was very successful. The TurboGrafx-16 was never successful in the U.S., and of course the TurboGrafx-CD then wasn't either. This deal actually helped drag Cinematronics down 
But still, this was something that Landros felt a little jealous about, that other people who were not him got to work with this advanced technology. Feeling underpaid, underappreciated, he decided that he would start looking for work elsewhere and learned that Virgin Mastertronic and their U.S. division was looking for an art director to join the company. So in about 1988, he joined Virgin Mastertronic as well as their art director. So Graham Devine, who ended up staying well beyond his initial, hey, come over for six months, became the head of programming, head of the programmers at Virgin Mastertronic USA, and Rob Landros was the art director. However, within a short period of time, both of them started to become fairly dissatisfied with Virgin. Virgin Mastertronic, of course, coming out of the UK tradition, they had started out being a computer game company. But during this time period, they really, really started focusing very heavily on the console market. And of course, the console market at this time, 1988, 1989, means the Nintendo Entertainment System. So they were starting to really phase out a lot of their PC work and really focusing on the console market. Within that console market, they were really focusing on doing licensed product. They were making games based on Cool Spot, the 7-Up mascot of the time. In fact, Graham Devine ends up making a puzzle game based on the Cool Spot character, which was actually based on an Amiga game called Infection, which in turn was kind of taking some of the basic elements of the game of life, the John Conway game of life, where you have pieces that you're placing on this board, and there's a little animated Cool Spot character that walks around as you're placing your pieces. As you place your pieces on the board, they can infect pieces placed around them and turn them to your color. It's kind of a two-player puzzle game, board game thing. I go into some detail about this because this may or may not come back to haunt us, pun intended, in the seventh guest period as well. What? Simple mind games in the seventh guest? Heaven forbid. He did this cool spot game, and they were also, they did a platformer based on McDonald's characters, a Ronald McDonald platform game. The interesting thing is Virgin Games USA brought some real talent in. They brought together a great team of artists and animators and programmers to make these games, but they were this licensed schlock. Now, a lot of times the animation and the graphics and even the gameplay were really good. I mean, even if you look at Divine's Cool Spot game, like the animation of Cool Spot as he's walking around the board is actually really good. It is very good. And it's not just does one animation there's like four of them i believe exactly it also depends on what happens if they move in a way that actually takes over another spot they does a little foot slam in order to knock them over you got off the board animations that happen so i mean there's a lot of animation going on here exactly they're actually really quite good games in their own way but they're tainted by their licenses you know, spot the video game and Ronald McDonald games. I mean, who's ever going to think those are decent games? Some of these people, you know, they go on to do great things. I mean, not just Graham Devine and Landros with their seventh guest, but, you know, Dave Perry is another one of their programmers. Nick Broody, the animator, who go on to form Shiny Entertainment and do Earthworm Jim. I mean, there's a lot of talent here, but they're really feeling kind of stifled by this NES stuff. 
they feel like they're better than these licensed NES games. And particularly Divine and Landros are like, you know, we came here thinking we'd be doing, you know, cutting edge PC games. And instead, we're doing this licensed NES schlock. And that's not what we feel we signed up for. Divine and Landeros decide that they will become the advanced R&D organization for Virgin Games USA. What this basically means, and they got approval to do this. I mean, they're not doing this behind anyone's back. But what this basically means is, in addition to doing their day job working on games like Spot the Video Game, they're going to start going around to conferences and see what's going on with technology and see how maybe Virgin can do something with some of the exciting technologies out there. There was no technology more exciting at this time than the technology of CD-ROM. So as the self-proclaimed advanced research group of Virgin Games USA, Virgin Mastertronic USA, they start attending CD-ROM conferences around the country. What they find as they go to these CD-ROM conferences is no one is really thinking about CD-ROM and games. Obviously, there are some people starting to do this in this same time period, not the least of which the Miller brothers, who end up creating Myst. But in terms of the conference world, in terms of the mainstream world of CD-ROM, no one is thinking about the application to games. And we've talked about this a little before in other episodes, about how in this period of time, and it, just to ground this in time, we're talking about circa 1990 at this point, that they're starting to attend these CD-ROM conferences. At this time, it was all the multimedia revolution. It was this idea that we can put a whole library on a single CD-ROM, or we can put a set of encyclopedias on a CD-ROM, and we can integrate audio and video. So when you read an encyclopedia article about Martin Luther King, you can pull up an audio recording of his I Have a Dream speech or even pull up the video recording of Martin Luther King presenting that speech in Washington and watch the I Have a Dream speech. This is what was exciting people in the early days of CD-ROM and multimedia, is putting whole libraries or whole encyclopedia sets or what have you on a CD-ROM and enhancing it with some pictures and some sound clips and some video clips. The Microsoft Encarta way of thinking, essentially. I'm sure you remember this too. It's like Encarta was such a major thing back then. Mm -hmm. It went on for a while, even though it kind of died out. I think the last major one I remember us getting was maybe in Carta 97. Right. Back then in the early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, it was just seen as the essential thing to have for your growing student. Exactly. And that's where multimedia was focused in the beginning. So they would go to these conferences and it would all be about things like, look how much I was able to compress text to get more text on the CD-ROM. Look at how I was able to add images to the CD-ROM. Like one of the first really major CD-ROM products was the Grolier's Encyclopedia, because we're still pre-incarnate in all of this, was Grolier's putting its encyclopedia on CD-ROM. That's what people were excited about at the time. They weren't thinking in terms of something like games. And Divine and Landeros were like, this is nuts. Because we really need to be figuring out, this is great for games. But, you know, we've talked about this in all sorts of formats. Whenever we've talked about computers advancing into the home, when we've talked about the Trinity or we've talked about the Commodore 64, when we've talked about multimedia in other episodes, whenever we've talked about this, 
Games are the dirty word. Everybody at the end of the day kind of understands that the only reason people are buying these computers when they first come out are for games. But nobody wants to say that out loud. Nobody wants to admit it, because from the point of view of marketers, it's like these computers are expensive. You know, an Apple II costing $1,200 in 1977 money. Even a Commodore 64, which, you know, cost like half that and, and then kept falling in price during the computer price wars. These were expensive products, and nobody wanted to come out there and say, actually, this is just a toy. Because at the time, nobody felt comfortable spending hundreds of dollars just on a toy. Or at least marketers didn't feel comfortable telling people you should spend hundreds of dollars on a toy. Even though games were always the obvious reason to buy an Apple II, to buy a Commodore 64, to buy an Amiga, to buy a multimedia PC equipped with VGA or SVGA graphics, a CD-ROM drive, and a fancy Sound Blaster sound card. Even though games were always the obvious reason to do it, nobody wanted to say that that was the obvious reason. You always had to figure out another reason. Oh, you can balance your checkbook. Oh, you can store your recipes. Oh, have you seen this VisiCalc thing or this Lotus123 thing where you can do spreadsheets and run your business? Oh, on the Macintosh, have you seen this desktop publishing thing where you can make newsletters right on your computer? Then when it came to multimedia, it's like, oh, have you seen how you can get an entire encyclopedia set for your children, your school-aged children, on this one little shiny disc? That's what it always has to be about, even though at the end of the day, it's almost always actually games that drive the majority of the sales early on. Because at that time, you don't have very many practical applications. The practical applications always come later. The first thing that always comes through is here's a way to have fun. They do some of these conferences, and they're like, this is not what we're about. We're not about getting more and more text on a CD-ROM. We're not about, oh, look, we managed to put a pretty picture in our article on the CD-ROM. No, we want to make games. So finally, in October 1990, they were at an intermedia conference in New York City. It was just another one of these events where people are bragging about how much text they've compressed, bragging about encyclopedias, bragging about all this educational stuff. They're sitting in the airport afterwards. They're like, this isn't getting us anywhere. We just need to create a game. So they literally, because they're at the airport, they're at the airport bar or whatever, they literally grab a napkin. I mean, there are so many stories where people talk about companies being created on the back of a napkin or, or whatnot. But in this case, it really is true. They grab a napkin from the bar or airport restaurant or wherever they are. They start sketching out their ideas to actually make a game out of this nonsense. It's like it's time to do this. There are a few things influencing them at this point. First of all, this is the height of twin Peaks on television. You remember Twin Peaks from back in the day? I was actually not one of those I got into. I didn't watch it back in the day either, but Twin Peaks was very, very briefly a sensation. It was a David Lynch television show. It was highly serialized at a time when television was not serialized. At its heart was the mystery in the first season, was the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer. You know, it was this big murder mystery, but then it, it spiraled from there. 
Kyle McLaughlin's FBI character is having these weird dreams. Even though you weren't a Twin Peaks person, you certainly remember who shot Mr. Burns on The Simpsons when Chief Wiggum has the dream. This suit burns better. Burns a suit. That was a parody of Twin Peaks. There was all of the symbolism, these weird dreams. There were all of these quirky characters, quirky side stories. Even though it didn't last for a brief period of time, it created an obsession amongst a large portion of the television-watching population about who killed Laura Palmer. This idea of a quirky murder mystery with weird characters and weird imagery was something that was very interesting to them. Then on top of that, Virgin Mastertronic had just purchased the Australian publisher Melbourne House. Melbourne House had at the time the rights to the Clue board game to turn it into a computer game. As they were thinking about doing a game, they were like, you know, one of the real letdowns of a lot of games that claim to be quote-unquote open world is that they sell you the idea that you're in an open world, but you're really not. There's huge limitations on what you can actually do. And they figured with a CD-ROM game, there were going to realistically be limitations on what they could let players do with this new technology. And so they wanted to keep their game really self-contained. Like, they wanted a closed environment. They didn't want to claim that you could, like, go all over a town or all over the country or all over the world. They wanted to keep it really constrained. They were fans of both horror movies and non-horror movies that took place in a constrained space. Things like The Shining, Stanley Kubrick, or Die Hard, the classic action movie with Bruce Willis that takes place entirely within the confines of a skyscraper that's under construction. So they thought, well, we've got the Clue license. What if we did something vaguely Clue-like, but with some of the eccentricity and symbolism and weirdness that is present in Twin Peaks? So that was the beginning of their gestation of this project in October 1990 in the airport bar on the back of a napkin. So, you know, they have the conversation, they sketch some things out, they go back to Virgin Games and Irvine. They get themselves a copy of Microsoft Word, and they just start brainstorming. They just start thinking. They just start fleshing out this very basic idea. Microsoft Word, not WordPerfect? No, no, Microsoft Word, you know, which, yeah, is not the most popular at the time, but is starting to come in. They purchase Word for Windows, and they start fooling around with a design document. You know, they had started with this Twin Peaks and Clue thing and having a constrained environment, and they very quickly moved from there to... Let's make it horror-themed. Because, I mean, there are various, like Die Hard, which is an action film, there are various constrained setting scenarios, but the most classic constrained setting scenario is the horror film. Something like The Haunting, the classic, really set the trope for the typical haunted house kind of story. Or The Shining, Jack Nicholson's character slowly goes insane as he serves as the caretaker with his family over the winter months at the Overlook Hotel. So they were drawn very quickly to this idea of a horror setting and this idea of a bunch of characters in an isolated space who are slowly driven insane by their circumstances and turn on each other and all of this craziness. They come out with a basic outline of all of this. After they spend a few months putting this together, they feel that they have a good enough pitch to bring to their boss, Martin Alper, the head of Virgin Mastertronic USA. 
as they tell the story. They delivered this design doc to Martin Alper one day at 11 o'clock in the morning. Martin Alper looks over it and at 11.30 in the morning tells them that he is taking them out to lunch. I like lunch. So he takes them in his Rolls Royce. That's right. Martin Alper has a Rolls Royce. Takes them out to lunch and basically says to them, I read your design document. I think it's great. You're fired. Wait, what? (laughs) You know, they've told the story various ways. So there are about 50 different versions of the exact quote that Martin Alper said, which means that none of them are probably actually true. But it is true that he basically said, this looks amazing, but I do not think your future is at Virgin, if this is what we're going to do. Virgin at this point is focused on the NES. It's focused on the console market. If I let you make this game at Virgin, it is going to cause so many problems. Either it's going to become this big project that takes over everything we're doing and pushes the other stuff aside. Or you're going to be this separate team that's off on its own doing its special thing, causing all sorts of resentment and jealousy from the rest of the staff. We cannot have this. However, Virgin as a company does want to look like it is an incredibly progressive, forward-thinking, technology-driven video game company. Even though there is no way I can justify making this game in-house at Virgin USA. I still want this game. What I'm going to do is I'm going to terminate your employment at Virgin. You are going to found your own company, and we are going to fund you to make this game so that we have this product. Martin Aubrey was quite frankly not expecting it to be a big hit, but he felt that it made sense as a prestige product to show off what Virgin can do. So I'm going to fund your company. You know, we normally spend $200,000 to $300,000 making an NES game, and it usually only takes us a few months to make it. I'm going to give you $600,000 and give you 18 months, let you make this game as a separate company, which then we will publish. I only have two conditions for you. First of all, nobody has CD-ROM drives. This is either at this point late 1990 or very early 1991. So when he says nobody has CD-ROM drives, he's, he's very correct about that. First of all, nobody has CD-ROM drives, so you're going to also need to make a floppy disk version of this game. Second of all, I'm going to give you some money, because I'm a good guy like that, but I'm giving you a lot of money. I don't completely trust you to run off to God knows where with all of my money. So you need to set up shop within about 90 miles of Virgin in Irvine, Orange County, Southern California. They said, fine, we'll do that, and founded their own company together called Trilobite in order to create this game. They agreed to the floppy disk thing, even though they were a little skeptical. And spoiler alert, there will never be a floppy disk version of The Seventh Guest, for quite frankly very good reason, because at the end of the day, The Seventh Guest ends up shipping on two CD-ROMs. CD-ROMs hold, what, 650 megabytes at this time of material? High-density 3.5-inch floppy disks are 1.44 megabytes? As the Atari folks said about the Atari Jaguar, do the math. The floppy disk version's just going to cost so much more. It's impossible. It would be, it would be on 600 floppy disks. Even if you did get to the 600 floppy disks, you then have the further complication of 
this is the early 90s. People don't have 600 megabyte hard drives. Yeah, no, it's it's just, it's it's nuts. Martin Alpert wasn't wrong that there weren't a lot of CD-ROM drives out there at the time. It's just, yes, that ended up being unrealistic. Then, of course, they decide to found the company in Oregon. Which, for those of you that are geographically challenged, let's just say is not particularly close to Southern California and is certainly not 90 miles from Southern California. Where exactly in Oregon? Jacksonville. There were a couple of things that happened here to get them to Jacksonville. First of all, Rob Landeros, you know, he was in the counterculture movement. I get the feeling he has a bit of a hippie streak in him. His brother had actually spent a couple of years in Oregon a few years before this and really fell in love with the state. So it was Rob Landeros that said, hey, why don't we check out Oregon? So Graham and Rob drive up in December 1990, December the 5th, 1990, to be exact, to Oregon. They actually had a conference in Northern California that they were attending. So Northern California is a bit closer to Oregon than Southern California. So after attending their conference in Northern California, they drove up to Jacksonville, 5th of December, and it just so happened to be the day of the Christmas tree lighting in Jacksonville, Oregon. Big event. There's Christmas decorations everywhere. There's people out everywhere. There's carolers out everywhere. At the end of the day, a light snow starts falling. It's this idyllic small town Christmas scene. Landros is already predisposed to Oregon because of his brother, and Graham Devine had this love of small-town USA that can only come, to some degree, from being an immigrant. He loved Disneyland. He loved Main Street USA in Disneyland, this kind of idealized, picturesque view of a small town in America. Jacksonville on that day, with the tree lighting and the carolers and the decorations— very much fit that idea of the stereotypical, kitschy, perfect, small-town USA location. So they both fell in love, and they decided that, yes, they would locate Trilobite in Jacksonville, Oregon, which I think you've been looking up is how far from Irving, California, Jeffrey? A mere 11 hours and 53 minutes away, assuming you have favorable traffic but really 739 miles. Let's just bring up the old calculator here. <laughs> 739 divided by 90 is roughly 8.2 times the distance he was allotted. Well, yeah, no. Now, there are a couple of different versions of this story. Again, it's crazy to me because there's only two people involved, yet it gets told differently in every source. Sometimes they say they weren't allowed to move more than 90 miles away. Sometimes they say they weren't allowed to move more than 90 minutes away. That's even worse. But you see, in this telling of the story, the 90 minutes version, the way they justify it is, well, maybe he meant 90 minutes by car. But you know, if you grab an airplane, it's basically 90 minutes by plane. And then that's settling the spirit of the stipulation, right? Question mark, question mark. Well, let's see here. I am on Google Maps. I can click the airplane button. <laughs> airplane button says, sorry, your search appears to be outside the current coverage for flight. 
So, no. You can't fly directly into Jacksonville. You would have to fly into one of the nearby towns in Oregon and then drive the rest of the way to Jacksonville. There is not an airport, or at least at the time, there was not an airport in Jacksonville. But still, yes, they kind of broke with things there, but that's where they decided they wanted to be. They fell in love with it in December. Then, of course, their poor wives went up to look for houses in January. And in January, they had had a massive cold snap and the pipes had frozen all over town and burst and the entire town flooded. And then the flooded water froze over and turned into ice. So their spouses had a slightly less, shall we say, picturesque introduction to Jacksonville, Oregon the next month. A bit more slipping and sliding, a lot less idyllic Christmas turkey. That's right. But nonetheless, they still did locate in Jacksonville. They ended up taking facilities in the downtown in an historic brick building above a bar. As Graham Devine said in a contemporaneous newspaper profile of the company, it was kind of fun being in those offices up there above the bar because when the bar fights spilled into the streets, they could watch them from their window. I didn't know Jacksonville, Oregon was known for bar fights. Well, I mean, what else are you going to do in Jacksonville, Oregon? Let's be honest with ourselves here, Jeffrey. Well, with great apology to people from Oregon, you let us know. Please let us know. So they hired an office manager by the name of Diane Moses and set up shop for Trollobite in Jacksonville, Oregon, above a bar. Which bar, though? Eh, it's not important. I could probably look it up, but it's not important. They've got their offices. They've got their office manager. They have this vague idea for a game. What comes next? Again, they know that this is going to be a game in involving live actors and film footage. They've decided that they're going to put it in this constrained space to keep things sensible. They've also decided that, you know, because they have to figure out how do you bring together the interactive portions of this and the video portions of this, because this is the problem plaguing every interactive movie. I mean, you can't actually really truly control a filmed character every step of the way through an adventure like this, because logistically it's just impossible. All of the filming you would have to do over and over and over again to create all the walk cycles, all the animation cycles, all of this. That didn't stop some companies from trying. That didn't stop Sierra, for instance, from trying to do some of that with Phantasmagoria. But in general, it was pretty clear that there was going to be some kind of sharp division between your filmed content and your interactive game content. It was actually Landeros that came up with the solution for this. Landros was a fan going way back of puzzles and brain teasers. Even on top of that, he was a real fan of a Macintosh adventure game from the mid-1980s, created by a gentleman named Cliff Johnson called The Fool's Errand. The Fool's Errand was a book, essentially, a storybook, in which you had various chapters within the storybook. And as you were going through the story, there would be times within the storybook motif that you would have to solve environmental puzzles on the screen in the storybook format. And by solving these puzzles, you would unlock additional story content. So there was a stark separation between narrative content and interactive content, but in order to unlock narrative content, you had to complete interactive content. 
Sound familiar for someone who's been recently checking out the seventh guest a lot in anticipation of Dragon Con? It does. It's like I have to walk around this mansion and solve puzzles like looking into a telescope and forming a sentence by following letters or making all of the bishops on this left side that are black and move them over to this right side and exchange them with the whites without causing issues. Or do that sliding game in order to make a thing so I can walk through a hole. Yes, exactly. I would say that on the whole, the Fool's Errand had far more inventive puzzles than the Seventh Guest did. We'll get back to some of the problems with Seventh Guest on that score in a bit. But the Fool's Errand dictated the method that they were going to do. They decided that very much like the Fool's Errand, they were going to have narrative chapters within their game. But these chapters would only be unlocked by completing puzzles. Just like in The Fool's Errand, you wouldn't unlock the narrative in a linear fashion. You would unlock different chapters of the narrative outside of sequential order by solving these puzzles in various places. So, fine. They've decided on the basic gameplay hook and the way they're going to put this stuff together. In terms of creating their narrative, they knew they had the basic idea of the narrative already. They knew it was going to be horror. They knew there were going to be ghosts. From the very beginning, it was planned that the characters were going to be ghosts. They knew that you were going to play this disembodied character called Ego that was going to be trapped within this house for reasons unknown at the start of the story, and that you were going to be moving around this mansion solving puzzles and unlocking narrative chapters. They did know that neither of them were actually writers, though. While they could come up with this basic premise, they understood that a game that was going to have this much narrative focus was going to need an actual writer to do it. So they ended up contracting with an established horror writer in New York by the name of Matthew Costello, who was also into games. He had done game reviews for a science fiction magazine in addition to his horror bona fides. He had had experience with horror. He had had experience with games. Seemed like a good fit to do this. And he didn't come out to Oregon. He remained a contractor. I mean, he visited them some, but he remained in New York for the most part. He's the one that penned the story. This story of a drifter by the name of Stauff, which is very consciously an anagram of Faust, the famous Goethe character who makes a deal with the devil, a Faustian bargain, as we call them today, based on the character where he gets what he wants but has to pay a horrible price that ends up not being such a great price to pay necessarily in the end, the prototypical deal with the devil. This character, Stauff, is a drifter who kind of turns really bad in his desperation. He murders a woman and steals her purse in order to uh, have enough money to eat and goes down this dark path. He starts receiving visions of toys and begins crafting toys based on his vision, particularly dolls, other toys as well, but especially dolls. These toys of his, because each one is so incredibly unique, come to be in high demand. Everybody wants them. He grows wealthy. However, some children that receive his dolls begin to sicken and die mysteriously. He then ends up locking himself away in his mansion, Then sometime later, extends an invitation to six individuals to come and stay a night in his mansion. Very classic haunted house scenario. Very much like an old Vincent Price movie called House on Haunted Hill in 1959. Yep. That has a very similar motif where you have this 
rich, eccentric person who invites people and will give them lots of money so that they can make whatever their dreams they want come true if they spend one night at the house and survive. Exactly. So he invites these six individuals to the house. There is also a young boy who sneaks into the house, the titular seventh guest. It is actually the soul of this young boy, this seventh guest, that Stauf requires to complete his demonic bargain. He wants the other six guests to hunt down and capture this child and bring the child to the attic to be sacrificed. We won't go into the entire plot of the game. You can always look up a Let's Play video for that kind of thing. But suffice it to say, these six individuals from diverse backgrounds end up having different views. Some of them want to help the boy. Some of them want to fulfill their dreams by helping Stauf. At the end, the boy, Tad, is delivered to Stauf, but his soul persists. And this uh, disembodied character of Ego that you're playing is actually the soul of Tad, who is constantly reliving these events. He has no memory of events, but he's constantly reliving the events. And your goal is to solve these puzzles, which allows you to view the narrative, which allows you to see what happens and ultimately prevent Stauf from finishing his deal with the devil and setting your soul free. Costello is the one that really fleshes out the characters, fleshes out the narrative based on the general idea that Divine and Landerals had come up with themselves. So they've got themselves a narrative from a real bona fide horror writer. In terms of the gameplay, they had been hoping to use a bunch of classic kind of 20th century puzzles and brain teasers that they've come across, but they realize that all of these are still under copyright because they're recent. They end up actually going to a 19th century book of puzzles for their puzzle designs, because they're not really designers. Landross is an artist. Divine is a programmer. They're both very good at these things, but neither of them are puzzle designers. So they end up going to a 19th century book for most of their puzzles, which I think is why there are so many chess puzzles in it. One, you have to do the classic one of put as many queens on the board as possible. Exactly. They got their puzzles primarily from this 19th century book. So then they need their environment because they're doing all this FMV stuff. Their plan was to go to a local mansion, the Noonan House, do a bunch of panoramic photography, 360-degree photography, in this house and use that as the setting for their game. They got permission to film within the Noonan house. There were just a couple of problems. First of all, they couldn't get a panoramic camera. Panoramic cameras were still fairly new and fairly high-tech. Jacksonville, Oregon, and surroundings are not exactly high-tech. They could have brought one up from California, from Hollywood, presumably, but that would have been a lot of expense, a lot of hassle. Panoramic camera was out. Then they thought, okay, well, we'll just create a 360-degree strip within our game program and then fill it in with individual photographs taken within a 360-degree radius. At this point, they weren't really expecting to animate anything anyway. They were expecting it to be kind of flick screen, very similar to Myst in that regard. Not that they saw Myst because Myst wasn't out yet. Similar idea that it was going to be flick screen rather than animated. So, fine. We'll just do that. And oh, by the way, it'll probably have to be in black and white, just because that's what things are capable of at this time. At this point, they had hired one artist. 
someone that they knew from Virgin who had worked for Virgin named Robert Stein, who had later then moved to a firm called Manly and Associates, which was also in the video game industry, but it was kind of an art consulting firm in the video game industry. So they brought Stein in as one of their artists, and Stein had actually been doing a lot of work in the, at the time, brand new 3D studio program. Stein told them, he was like, you know, guys, I think I can just create you an animated 3D mansion. We don't need to deal with this photograph stuff. Because you see, Landeros and Divine had already ruled that out because they were used to very, very, very early 3D polygonal graphics where you didn't really have shading, you didn't really have textures, you had these very simple geometric solids without much going on with them. They thought that was way too primitive for what they were looking for. They didn't realize that there had been some advances coming hot and heavy, but Stein, being an artist that had already been working with 3D Studio, realized that this was a thing. He was like, well, you know, just let me whip something up. So he did. He did this little thing where he had this floating furniture. This, it was just a demo, but he had this floating furniture that was dancing around, animated. And they were like, oh, wow, this actually does work. So we will do 3D pre-rendered spaces. As they got more and more into 3D Studio, they realized they could have animated stuff. Like Landeros, when he was originally creating icons for moving around, looking at things, etc., he was just drawing pixel art. Then after they were doing this 3D generation stuff for a while, for the backgrounds, he was like, well, why don't I try building an icon in 3D and animating that? Their very first one he did was the pulsing brain inside the skull. He realized, oh my gosh, we can actually do these animated little icons as well. And they look so cool. And so, you know, he did more like the famous beckoning skeletal finger and everything. So they realized, hey, 3D polygonal stuff has actually moved along well enough that we can make all of this work. One other thing I didn't say, the interface, they were trying to do something mass market. And so very similar to the people that did Mist, it was the same idea. They were like, we want this to be mass market. So we're going to make the interface as simple as possible. So they wanted to make it single-click icon-driven with a contextual icon, where the icon would change shape and change what it does contextually based on what you're hovering over, because they wanted it to be simple, simple, that even your mother could play it. They didn't want complex interface. And so he got these animations going. It's like, hey, this is really cool. So the mansion's starting to take shape. The puzzles are starting to take shape. The story is starting to take shape. Now we need to film. This is where things get a little bit fraught in this whole thing. Because you see, they only have $600,000 to do this whole thing. They don't have a lot of money for the filming. Certainly they're not going to get big name actors. Certainly they're not going to get a professional film crew, all of this. They're kind of on their own here. Now, it just so happens that they're in a convenient part of Oregon. They are very near the town of Ashland in Oregon, which has a well-renowned Shakespeare festival. So there are some regional theater Shakespearean actors available to film for relatively cheap prices. They basically raid the Shakespeare Society in Ashland for the vast majority of their actors. It's not the best acting, but it's better than, like, say, Graham and Rob trying to do all the acting themselves. So there is that. 
of course, they're going to be incorporating these actors into these pre-rendered 3D backgrounds. So that means we need to do chroma key filming, where we have a background that they're filming against that is a particular shade of something, almost always done with either blue or green, because these are colors that don't show up naturally on a human complexion and standard human clothing and props and whatnot, so it works out okay, because then you're going to replace that background with something else. They decide to do blue screen, which was something that was used a fair amount at that time. Green screen is far more common, it is what's used now, but at the, at the time, blue was also used. However, two things. First of all, they don't have a lot of money, so they don't have nice, professional, Hollywood-style blue screens, which were still relatively new at the time and therefore somewhat expensive. They were basically using cardboard with blue paper over the top of it. Then it turns out they used the wrong shade of blue. Then it turned out that at some point during filming, which was done above a comic book shop in Medford, Oregon, somebody fell into the blue screen and damaged it. Then they decided that they could just repair that with tape and everything would be fine. So they had this really janky blue screen that was the wrong shade of blue and had this big gash in it that let's just say the tape did not cover up. Because they had the wrong shade of blue, they couldn't properly do chroma key replacement, and they had artifacting and halos around all of the characters. They also had this one spot that was very obviously a place where the blue screen had ripped. But they only had $24,000 to do all of this filming, you understand. And that's for everything. That's for actors, for costumes, props, blue screen cameras, everything. 24000 they got lucky. Now, they did have to spend a lot of time editing out that gash in the blue screen by hand. Very arduous process. But they were lucky because they had, even before this, decided that the characters would be ghosts. So the fact that there was this pixelated halo around the characters, that was actually fine because it's ghostly auras. Sure, we'll call it that. So they didn't spend a lot of time cleaning up the bad chroma key stuff because they were able to justify it and get away with it by saying they're ghosts. It's just their halo. But they did have to spend a lot of time editing out that gash. So this is just, you know, indicative of the very early days of this stuff. Because let me tell you, technologically, this was a lot. It took them 35 minutes to render a single frame of their game. A full 360 rotation, because they did decide to animate it, a full 360 rotation around one of the rooms was about 120 frames. Since you've already got stuff up, what's 120 times 35? 4,200 minutes. Now divide that by 60. 70 hours. A full 360 rotation of just one room in the mansion would take that many hours to render. And remember, every time you have to make a change, you have to re-render. 
for the math not inclined, that 2.9 days. Yeah. Remember, all of the CD stuff is new at this time. There are not consumer CD burners. There are not consumer CD writable discs. A disc that they could write to, a CD-ROM that they could write to, was a $100 item. Every time they needed to write something to a CD, that was $100. If they screwed up that burning, which did happen, they might as well have just taken our good friend Ben Franklin and lit him on fire. The technology alone would eat so much of their budget. Exactly. They were working in SVGA, as we said, because they had decided that they wanted to have, you know, state-of-the-art as best they could. 3D Studio allowed them to render these files. 3D Studio allowed them to render these high-resolution SVGA-quality graphics as what they called PIX files, P-I-X. That was the proprietary file extension. They could render them, but there wasn't a viewer for them. So you could create a PIX file, but you could not watch a PIX file. That kind of defeats the point, doesn't it? If I'm going to render something, I would like to view it somehow. Yes. You know, some of these companies have their own proprietary ones, but there wasn't like a commercial version. So Graham Devine, great programmer that he is, actually created his own PIX file player. He reverse-engineered the file format using a hex editor and then wrote a player for it that they called Play that could play these files. Then, because they are burning through their money, it is costing more than Virgin had hoped this thing would cost. They released their player, called Play, as shareware, which means you can download for free, but to unlock the full features, you have to send in money. They used the revenues from this to help continue to fund the creation of the game. It's interesting, one of the people that bought their player was a gentleman by the name of Jim Kent, who worked for the company Autodesk. Autodesk had their own proprietary player for these kind of files, but it was much bigger in terms of the size of the program than Graham's was. Graham's program was better. You see, Graham was a master of compression and a master of elegant, efficient code because he had worked on budget games in Britain on cassette. You had to be really good at compressing stuff to work in budget games on cassette in Britain. We already talked about how he was a programming prodigy, so he was really good at compression. So his program was very elegant. So this Jim Kent guy actually sent them in their money, you know, for the shareware with a handwritten note saying, hey, we have a program that works with these files. If you let us use your viewer program, we will let you use our program. And that's how they got to use Autodesk's Animator Pro program free of charge, which is how they were able to do a lot of the animation stuff that they did within the game that we talked about. Autodesk isn't cheap, kids. As someone who has to buy it for his company, it ain't cheap. <laughs> exactly. So that was a pretty crazy and fortuitous luck, but it goes back to Devine's programming ability. But there's all sorts of technical hurdles that they're having to go through. You know, the main thing is getting the compression down. As I just talked about before, Divine is just particularly good at compressing things. What he figured out very early on is the human eye is very sensitive to shades, luminosity, 
light and dark, but for the most part is not very discerning when it comes to shades of color. Now, there's some colors that we see more shades of than others, like green. But in general, minute differences in color shade is not something that is very easily perceptible to the human eye. So what he realized is he could compress the heck out of color in order to squeeze these files down to something that was usable and something that could be streamed off of the CD-ROM. It's only because of Divine's great programming capability that they were ever able to get this thing manageable. still took two CDs. It was still a huge program. But thanks to Divine's ability, they were able to have these SVGA environments, which they did in Letterbox because they thought that that gave it a certain sophistication, just as Laserdisc movies were in Letterbox at the time. They thought that that was more sophisticated. They didn't do that because Letterbox saved them memory or something. They just decided that that was the more sophisticated way that made it seem more artistic. They were able to get these Letterbox fully animated scenes with live actors imposed on them to fit on these two CDs. They didn't know how this was going to go over, obviously, as they were making this game, but they kind of got their first hint that this might be something kind of big when they brought the game to CES, Consumer Electronics Show, in, I think, 1992. They're trying to keep Virgin appraised on their progress with this thing. They bring it up to CES just to show to Martin Alpert it's not there to be demoed as part of Virgin's slate. They need to show the program in process to Martin Alper, the demo they have, because they're still a long way from finished at this time. They go to one of the computers on the show floor, which is either playing Scrabble or Monopoly. Because again, for some strange reason, the story has so many like minor variations. It's like the Mandela effect, I swear. The way the different stories have these slightly different variations. So some tellings of it say that they were running Monopoly on this one computer, other tellings say they were running Scrabble. But either way, it was one of their less important demo computers because it just had a board game adaptation running on it. So they stopped that demo from running, and they put the seventh guest in there just to show Martin Alper. It's it's very rough, it's very in progress. They actually load the entire game onto the hard drive of the computer and then have a Danny Elfman CD in there to provide musical background. Danny Elfman did not do the music for Seventh Guest, but this was just something to pair with the program at this time. They're showing this thing to Martin Alper on the show floor. Because it's on the floor, other people can see it. Suddenly, people start gathering around. Pretty soon, people from all of the major other companies start gathering around. According to them, Roberta Williams of Sierra comes around with one of her lead programmers and says, See, I told you it was possible to do something like this. And the people from Origin come around and all sorts of people come around and it becomes one of the surprise sensations of the show. Everyone is blown away by these 3D rendered environments and these real actors, even if they're kind of pixelated and ghostly showing up on the screen. Everyone is absolutely blown away they get the feeling that this is going to actually be a pretty big deal. So when they're getting ready to release the game in early 1993, April 1993 to be exact, the CFO of Virgin, Keith Greer, has this idea, because Virgin doesn't have a lot of money on hand to actually manufacture this thing. With the amount they've budgeted and the fact that it's going to be two CDs now, They're only going to be able to initially create 60,000 copies of this game, which isn't a huge amount. I mean, 
even in the early 1990s, you're happy if you sell 60,000 on PC, which always has lower sales figures than a console, but it's nothing to get that excited about. They're only going to be able to produce 60,000 copies up front. So Greer has the idea that they should turn this into an event because, I mean, they've known, you know, from things like the CES demo and whatnot, they know there's going to be buzz around this. They know people are going to be excited about the technology. So he has the idea, let's sell this as a collector's item, since we're only making 60,000 of them. We're going to charge $100 for it, $99. $99.99. <laughs> Obviously, some stores will sell it for less than that, but the manufacturer's suggested retail price is going to be $99. But let's do it as a collector's package that includes a video documentary, a little book, and the soundtrack. The soundtrack is being created by the fat man, George Sanger, and his group, which are very well regarded. They've done music for several high-profile games, including Maniac Mansion and Wing Commander. The Fat Man is the pinnacle of American computer game music in this time period. The Fat Man and his group, he doesn't do all the music. He has a, a group he works with, but they're doing the music. So it's, it's got some pretty decent tunes. We'll do a soundtrack. We'll do a booklet. We'll do a collector's edition. I can't say that it was the very first collector's edition. It probably wasn't. But in a time before the idea of doing collector's editions were standard, now just about every big game has a collector's edition that you can pre-order in addition to the regular version. They decided to do a collector's edition for $99. They released the game in April 1993, and the 60,000 are gone in an instant. It's a bestseller. People are drawn in because even though it may look kind of cheesy today, and even though the narrative is not groundbreaking in any way, this idea that you have this narrative unfolding that you have control over was really foreign at the time. I mean, obviously there were games with stories. There were plenty of games with stories. But this wasn't a game with a story. This was a movie in which you were controlling the advancement of the plot. It's hard to explain if you weren't there, but there was something about the idea of controlling a movie that was very powerful. I mean, just about everyone was sucked into it at that time. I was sucked into it at that time. Even though the plots were simplistic, the acting was hammy, a lot of the puzzles were quite simply terrible. <laughs> the two most infamous ones, there was the puzzle in the kitchen in the pantry where you had to organize these cans to spell out a specific phrase. But this phrase was based on some Scottish thing, because Graham Devine's Scottish. And this game's being released in the United States, so the phrase that you have to do makes absolutely no sense. Like, there's no reason you would think that that was the phrase. As I mentioned earlier, the reason we talked about the spot game so much is they actually included the spot game in Seventh Guest. But they ramped up the difficulty to make it literally impossible. And when I say literally impossible, the strategy guide for the game said that the programmer, Graham Devine himself, had not figured out a consistent way to beat the AI. They literally made this game impossible. In fact, when they re-released Seventh Guest on iOS, they did not include this puzzle in the iOS version. Because the puzzle was literally impossible. Now, thankfully, the puzzle was optional. You didn't need to complete this puzzle to complete the game and get the whole story. But of course, if you're playing the game, you don't know that. You assume it's another puzzle that you have to complete. So there were people banging their heads against the wall with this nearly impossible puzzle. So the puzzle design is terrible. 
The acting is melodramatic and not great. The plot is fine, but it's not special. It's a pretty typical haunted house plot. The graphics were impressive for the time. They were. But looking back today, they're nothing special at all. They don't hold up in a modern environment. But despite all of that, the fact that this was a movie that you were controlling and you had this animated mansion and when you move your little beckoning cursor from place to place, the whole screen shifted and you're moving through this mansion and you're slowly uncovering this mystery of Tad, the seventh guest, who Stauff is and what happened to all of these people and who you are, who Ego is. That was so different compared to anything that was on the market at the time that people just fell head over heels for this. So the 60,000 were gone in an instant. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies by the end of the year. Then it sold over a million copies. Then by 1996, it had sold 2 million copies. It's an incredible amount of copies for a computer game at that time, 2 million copies. This wasn't from like what we were saying was missed, where it's a tie-in thing. Is like, hey, buy a CD-ROM, we'll throw in the seventh guest. There was some OEM bundling of it. I mean, that did happen too, but it wasn't quite the same as Mist, like you said, where a lot of people got it with their computer and then never necessarily played it. I mean, people were playing it. And in the beginning, when Mist was still just on Macintosh, it was outselling Mist. Now, Mist overall sold more copies because of all that bundling. You know, Seventh Guest sells 2 million, Mist ultimately sells 6 million. But in the early 93, 94 period, Seventh Guest was selling more than Mist. Seventh Guest was the product that announced that the CD-ROM was here. And right at the same time that Seventh Guest came out in 1993, Multimedia PC, which was an actual category of PC, a Multimedia PC was defined as a PC that had a VGA or SVGA graphics, a CD-ROM drive, and a Sound Blaster of some kind, either a Sound Blaster or a Sound Blaster 16. That was the definition of a Multimedia PC, and there was actually an entity called the Multimedia Council that would designate PCs as multimedia PCs. Right as 7th Guest was coming out, multimedia PCs were dropping in price. They had been $2,700, $2,800, $3,000, and you were starting to get some multimedia PCs that were coming down in price to as low as $1,500. So you had this virtuous cycle developing. Multimedia PCs were coming down in price at the exact same time 7th Guest was providing the first real event software that was a killer app for having a multimedia PC. So they fed off of each other. It's, it's been said, Virgin people claim this, it's been hard to find independent verification of this, but people at Virgin claim that CD-ROM sales shot up, CD-ROM drive sales shot up when the 7th Guest came up by as much as 300% in some stores. Because 7th Guest became the must-have game, but you needed a CD-ROM. So people would go out and buy a CD-ROM. I've also heard, though once again I can't completely corroborate this, that Software Etc. was actually bundling CD-ROM drives with 7th Guest, where if you got 7th Guest, you got a, a CD-ROM drive as well, or vice versa. Software Etc. being one of the major uh, computer game retailers at the time. Even though I can't completely verify this idea that 7th Guest was driving CD-ROM sales, it does make a certain amount of sense, because this really was the first program that demonstrated the power. I mean, there had been some other CD games before this. The Manhole had come out on CD, one of the projects that the Miller brothers did before they did Mist, but that was just a very simple interactive storybook. Sierra put out Mixed Up Mother Goose on CD-ROM, but it really wasn't that different from the original disc version. 
there have been the ICOM Sherlock Holmes games, but as we talked about, the video in that was in this really small window and was not really integrated with the rest of the program. This was the first time where you got this big, bold SVGA 3D rendered space in which real, actual human people, as opposed to polygons, were running around and doing things. Even though it may not look super impressive today, it was mind-blowing at the time. And so it became the first true killer app for CD-ROM drives and did help spur those sales and lead to that revolution. Of course, it was a short-lived revolution because as, you know, it came out in April 1993 and in December 1993, a little game called Doom was uploaded to the internet in its shareware form. Even though it took a couple of years, it became very apparent in the end that Doom was going to be the future of this kind of thing. This fast action 3D graphics game was going to be the future and not the interactive movie. But for its time, it was a truly phenomenally selling piece of software. It rocketed Trilobite to the heights of the industry. It led to those comparisons of Divine and Landros as the Lennon and McCartney of video games, which was overblown, but just goes to show how much regard was held for this game at the time. Sold 2 million copies, which is just unfathomable for a computer game at the time, and led to massive investment in Trilobite, which then tried to become a publisher. That did not end well. That is a story we're not going to tell today. Suffice it to say, things do not go great for Trilobite. They are quickly overcome by infighting and technological hurdles and creative dead ends that we will not discuss in this episode. But for one brief shining moment, this game's seventh guest and this company Trilobite and these creators Graham Devine and Rob Landeros were at the very pinnacle of the video game industry. Quote some Shakespearean actors. Now we shall continue our quest to learn more history by going forth and learning about something else completely different. Yes, I suppose we will. What will that be? Well, uh, it's been a while since we've covered any coin-op topics, so it feels like this would be a good time to pivot back in that direction. It's also been a long time since we've talked about legal stuff, which, seeing as I have a law degree, is something that is at least vaguely near and dear to my heart. Next time, we are going to examine the birth of copyright for video games, which was primarily accomplished through the arcade industry, since that was the first really hot market. At the time that the first successful coin-operated video games were coming out in the late 70s and early 1980s, copyright was still defined in terms of books and printed material and films, and there was no really good way to necessarily apply, or no intuitive way, I should say, to apply existing copyright law to video games, which led to a long period of uncertainty a lot of copying, a lot of cloning, and then over time, the video game manufacturers, coin-op manufacturers, started to assert themselves not just in the United States, but also in Japan, Britain, continental Europe, and were able to successfully push forward the idea that, hey, these really are a form of artistic expression that deserves that kind of protection. So it's a fairly interesting story. It's an international story, one I think that would be well served by coverage on They Create Worlds. I recall us talking about it a bit in Japan, too. Just a little bit with Space Invaders, absolutely. Okay, get out your books, get out your legal pads, 
we got some lawyering to do. Next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.